everyone. So in this podcast, I'm talking to the CEO of Honeycomb. No, not the beautiful honeycomb wrapped in chocolate, violet crumble type honeycomb, which I love. They're a leader in observability. For anyone that doesn't know what observability is, don't worry, we're not getting technical in this podcast, but observability is essentially, it's the software that's monitoring the software that runs all of our applications and all our systems, our banking apps, our TV apps, Netflix, Disney, all of these systems, and it's identifying any issues that are occurring in any of that software and helping engineers basically fix it so it can work perfectly. And for those people that know, I've worked in observability or APM as it was at the time, application performance monitoring, for a long time, nearly a decade. And I worked for the leader, one of the leaders, I'm going to say, Dynatrace. And for me to do a podcast with Christine, it was a little bit challenging because I developed naturally over a long period of time a great deal of loyalty to Dynatrace and I found it a little bit difficult at first to work out if I was going to be successfully objective enough to have a fruitful conversation. I don't think it's got anything to do with me. I think Christine Yen is one of those people that you get in a conversation with her and you can't help but feel really connected. Yeah, I think one of the great humbling experiences of building Honeycomb has been building the tech. Tech is easy. Um, it's the talking about it to other humans that's hard. She's not your average CEO. We were two engineers with no product background, no, and certainly no go-to-market background. But we had, a, because we had both lived this and lived the solution or a version of the solution, we had a very clear idea of the experience that we wanted people to have when interacting with what is now Honeycomb. This company is also responsible for defining the space called observability. New word to set us apart and to set, be able to reset expectations relative to monitoring and logging, which already have strong connotations, yep. especially for customers. Um, and, uh, you know, no, no one should ever start their company saying, I will define a new buzzword um, or a new yeah. category, and, and that will be key to my success. Uh, but you did. But we did, and we, we, we kind <laughs> of knew it was the, again, that was, it was the only path forward for us because there was so much gravity pulling us towards one of these other three worked. phrases. Yep. And they find themselves now in the magic quadrant, in the leadership quadrant. And they're a company that if you look around on social media and you look at some of the discussion forums, you'll recognize that no one dislikes them. They have a significant street cred. I know why. And you're about to find out. Christine, welcome to the Tech Seeking Human podcast. How are you? I'm excellent. How are you? I am really well. I'm really excited to finally get the opportunity to talk to you. We've been we've been flirting with the idea of talking to each other for a long time now and so many things have been getting in our way like life and work and just being busy, but I've finally got the chance to sit down with you and understand a little more 
about what's going on in the world of honeycomb. Where on earth has this company come from? Landed itself in the magic quadrant and uh, is looking to be like a red hot observability platform. Um, where do we start? Wherever you want to start. Um, like you said, I'm just glad we got through our scheduling shenanigans. Um, <laughs> we need an get AI. To, get to talk. Oh, I know. Can you develop an AI for calendars? Uh, that would be I'm, super good. I'm sure there's already five seed stage startups out there already doing that. Oh, well, we can't come soon enough. Let's start with, um, I'm going to start with a name, the Honeycomb. Actually, little known fact, our very first name um, and the name that we incorporated under uh, was Hound. Um, we, we liked it because we were like, okay, well, you know, what we want to facilitate is someone sort of solving a mystery, going on a mystery, going on a mystery hunt. And what, what does this in real life? Well, bloodhounds and, and hounds, and they're, they're, they're seeking answers to, you know, each, each incremental clue and following a path. And, um, you know, given the players in the market, you can imagine we knew that this was going to be a temporary name, (laughs) but it was, I nearly said that there's something about a dog in this industry. It's like, I don't know if you want to do that way. (laughs) This is in 2016, so uh, you know the the current players are not who they are today. Yep. Uh, back then, but even so, we sort of knew it was going to be a working name, and um, we actually got a cease and desist from a different company with a different hound related product. Um, and it's a good start. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, or whatever the precursor to a cease and desist is. But upshot it is, a few months in, we got to sit down and um, having spent you know four or five months building the product talking uh talking about what we were trying to build we were like what's really important to us uh, first that we retain that very kind of human friendliness of having a normal english word normal english now no silly misspellings or you know we're, we're all coming out of the dotly era of, of startup naming um we and we really liked the idea or it was really important to us that it captured this sense of structure right um, we were looking at the logging space and we were like, well, it's 2016. You have to structure your data. You have to, if you're looking at, if you're dealing with any type of data at scale, um, it's got to be structured in order to be able to analyze it in a meaningful way. So it's, we've got to have structure. Um, and we started playing with things in nature and playing with things that were very human yet had an innate structure to them. And when someone threw out the name honeycomb, we were like, oh man, not only does it have structure and is human, there's this sense of little bits of honey all around mm. where when you, after you do the work, you get, you get the insight. There's this feeling of um, you know, all of these worker bees doing work for you to get the honey. And you know, uh, this is not actually how beekeepers work, but in, my head, in our heads, we were like, beekeepers just get to show up and, and, and get the honey. And we liked all of those connotations for the experience that we wanted someone to be able to have uh, with the product. And I think we figured we would be doing enough explaining of what the product was throughout the lifetime of the product that we didn't feel quite like the name needed to explain itself. It's probably, you know, mixed, mixed jury on that, but it's, it's been, it's worked very well for us so far. It's, It's a great name. Is it when you say we, who's we in this scenario? Is this something you guys did internally? Did you use an agency to brainstorm? Like it's a pretty creative name. Oh, it was myself, my co-founder Charity, um, and two of our engineers in the 
tiny back patio of the apartment office we were leasing in downtown and soma in san francisco so it was amazing you know, beers after work and we just drew up a giant list and what uh, are we gonna call this thing that we're yeah. doing right now what do you think i don't know get me another beer and let's really think through this and then bang there it is that's some of the best ideas come from they say you know the the back of a napkin yeah and ultimately we were stunned that the domain name was available um yep. and we were like let's let's do it let's go what what year is this 2016. Is this when you're starting? Like you've just started because I want to now go into like, where did the idea come from that you're like, yeah. we've got a challenge in a APM market or a, whatever it was called back then. I sort of vaguely know. Um, <laughs> but, but where did you come from the harebrained idea to go like, there's some big vendors out there and we've got a better idea. Let's do it. Oh, it was, uh, if only it was that logical. Um, so my co-founder and I met at a startup called Parse, um, which if anyone remembers back in 2012, um, when we met, it was a mobile backend as a service. And um, she was running the infra team. She was the first infra hire, eventually ran the infra team. I was a product engineer, ended up building their analytics product. And um, the, the whole promise of our product was you can use our SDKs and our APIs, and we will abstract all of the messiness of dealing with servers from you, Mr. or Ms. app developer. And great product. Um, lots of developers loved it. But the upshot of promising to abstract away all the complexity meant that we had to take on the complexity. Um, we had to take on why this SDK version on that version of iOS hitting this endpoint with this shape of payload fell over. Um, and I remember back at the time, this company was maybe 15, 20 people. Engineers would do a day on support. And because we had a huge free offering and, you know, a fairly small number of small pro accounts within a day, when someone would email in saying parse is broken, even just the back and forth of figuring out <laughs> the parameters of the, the broken problem um, could take more than the day that you were assigned to answer the question. And so at the time, because they were all free users, like very often someone would write in and complain. You'd just be like, mm, can't figure it out. What's maybe, maybe I'll pass it to the next person or maybe it'll just get stuck under the rug. And um, uh, to give you, uh, face, Facebook ended up acquiring Parse in 2013. And um, to give you a sense of scale, the scale of this like complexity mess that we were dealing with, um, at the time we were serving 60,000 unique mobile apps. And so these are apps where they could have anywhere between one or a million end users. Um, they, some apps were write heavy, some apps were read heavy, some apps um, would, were mobile games that synced their entire game state from every open client every second to our servers. Um, it was chaos and the tools that we would use to figure out what was happening or why something was not working the way that we expected just were not able to handle this explosion of complexity that we were dealing with. Mm. Um, and to give you a sense of the tools that we were using at the time, um, we had, I think it was Ganglia on the monitoring side. We had some log, log aggregator tool. I can't even remember at the time. Um, neither of which is really optimized for, hey, someone is complaining about I'll take a real example. Um, about a couple months before the acquisition happened, Disney decided to start trialing an app on Parse. Mm -hmm. 
And we had a brand new salesperson who was talking to Disney. And I remember him going over to Charity and I was, you know, sitting maybe 20 feet away. And he was like, hey, Charity, Disney says Parse is down. Can you look into it? And yeah. Charity would look at her, right? And like, she, well, she'd look, she'd try and she'd look at her dashboards of the overall system and she'd be like, everything looks green. Have you made sure their Wi-Fi is on? Which is like a not oh. unusual question to ask folks during through the support channel because mobile yeah. sometimes the Wi-Fi wasn't on. And the salesperson was like, Charity, I, I can't go back and ask Disney if their Wi-Fi is on. Can you look into it? Uh, but because we had the dashboards for our overall health um, and the only way that we could find out what was happening just for them was to have an engineer go in and write, if app ID is Disney, spit out a separate graph, spit out like a separate set of charts just for them. Um, right. Cause monitoring, you're dealing with everything in aggregates and yeah. log aggregator was just like no help in, in helping us find patterns. And so, you know, the Disney thing, we ended up finding like half a day, found an issue. I don't remember what it was, but that was state of the art in 2012. Um, so if, if Disney, then that, yeah, <laughs> it's quite, it's quite yeah. funny. And, and, and then your sales reps really good. Start selling to more people. And you're like, if, if like Walmart, if, can you imagine? if Delta, if yeah. like, you're going, uh Oh, <laughs> so when Facebook acquired us, you know, one of the things that big companies always do is they're like, Oh, tiny startup. You're so cute. Here are our big kid toys. And, um, for the most part, the toys, frankly, were garbage because they were built for Facebook problems, which were not multi-tenant SaaS, polyglot storage, oh, interesting. you know, platform problems. Um, yeah. But there was this one internal tool called Scuba that didn't look like anything we were familiar with. It wasn't like a monitoring tool at Facebook scale or a logging tool at Facebook scale. It was this thing that made a set of trade-offs um, around working with data that would let us capture you know, a, a, a sampled stream of all the data that was flowing through Parse and arbitrarily zoom into any of those 60,000 unique apps to be like, what's happening with this app today? Because mm -hmm. again, the nature of the mobile market at that time, you would have some launch happen without you even realizing. And, you know, one day it'd be Disney trialing you. One day it would be a Russian dating app that suddenly exploded. The other day it'd be something that, you know, took off on Product Hunt. You just couldn't predict what would happen and how it would stress the overall system. Um, and then the important, the, the sort of important follow-up from being able to find what was happening for one app is which other apps is this happening to? Who else is sending this combination of, you know, put requests against this endpoint from that specific SDK version? And we became converts, right? This, the Disney challenge that used to take half a day could then become a 15 second operation to look up Disney requests per endpoint broken down by SDK version, broken down by you know, whatever other custom attributes we had added um, mm -hmm. that mattered to our system. And uh, again, to give you a sense of scale, in 2013, we were 60,000 unique mobile apps. By 2015, we were over a million unique mobile apps. And so this chaos just got worse. Um, and, and yet the fact that we'd upgraded the tools that we used to make sense of it, um, really helped us manage all of that, all of that growth. Um, so that's 2012 through 2015. Uh, the, the, the sort of background music to this story is that charity and I, neither, neither of us were 
particularly happy at Facebook. Um, you know, we were startup people, not big company people. Yeah. And we would hear, you know, each other say things like, I kind of, you know, I don't want to be here anymore, but I don't want to have to build a system like Parse again without Scuba. I don't know how to build a platform that is this complex without something that can handle that complexity. And as we looked towards the trends in the future, we were like, well, everything's becoming a platform. Um, everything is embracing this level of um, complexity. You know, 2016, 2015, right before containers were taking off, it was before Kubernetes. Yeah. We were like, people are starting to talk about this container microservice thing. Isn't that just another version of this SDK explosion, this, you know, operating system version explosion, this mobile problem that we're having. And I don't, we're, we were not the type of founders to say, we want to start a company. Let's go find a problem to solve. Um, we were the type of founders who were like, <laughs> we are arrogant engineers and we know best. And we have looked at all the tools on the market and they all suck. Yeah. There's your problem. And we know, but, and, and we have seen, this thing that should not only exist inside Facebook. We want to bring this to the rest of the world so that they too can build their parses while being able to make sense of their, um, their challenges. Um, and so we both ended up leaving in 2015, uh, myself in the start of the year, her near the end of the year, and really got drawn back together around solving this problem and knowing that we, there was an opportunity to build a business around it. Do you, do you see, I thought, I'm so fascinated by this where you start in a technical realm. Where do you start? Do you start coding something and going, I think it's sort of, or do you start defining? Is it in a PowerPoint presentation? Is it on a Word doc? Is it on a PowerPoint presentation, like a, a whiteboard? Like, where do you start defining what we're going to build? We were two engineers with no product background, no, and certainly no go-to-market background. But we had a, because we had both lived this and lived the solution, or a version of the solution, we had a very clear idea of the experience that we wanted people to have when interacting with what is now Honeycomb. We knew we wanted it to be very fast. We knew it wanted to be. We wanted the experience to feel very interactive. Um, we knew, and this is going down some data nerd holes, but we knew that we wanted the users to be able to update the schema um, mm -hmm. on the fly. Previous, you know, other logging solutions inside Facebook, you had to file a ticket to be able to add a new piece of metadata onto an existing stream of data. We're like, that's that's not a thing that will allow developers to be as productive as they should be. It's got to be flexible, um, and folks have to be able to get back and forth between uh, an aggregate chart and the raw data that created that. Um, and so we, we had a bunch, we had a very clear idea of the, the user experience. We, at the time, Facebook had already published the white paper for Scuba. Um, and so there was publicly available knowledge about the architecture, uh, the columnar store that was necessary to provide this experience. And um, I am, to this day, still embarrassed that we spent, we, just, we were just like, great, we're going to go and focus on the technology and we'll, we'll figure out the words later. Because six months in, eight months in, I still remember six months in, uh, we, we effectively started the company January 2016, although I had started doing some prototyping before that. Um, in June, we tried to talk, we tried to recruit our first designer. And again, mm -hmm. designer before a marketer gives you an idea of where our priorities were at the time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Little did we know. Right. 
probably probably right. <laughs> uh, um, but we were chatting with this designer in a bar in San Francisco, and trying to explain what problem we were trying to solve and how we were different. And I still remember the look on this poor person's face, just completely lost because we were talking about data and high cardinality and real-time performance. And this designer was just like, I don't know any of these words or why they matter. And and I could see Charity just go, okay, let's reset. You know, the last time you were on call and then this, you could, this designer just shut, you know, went to sleep um, effectively yeah. in, the, in the seat. Like we had, I couldn't explain it. We could only we could only explain it to people who had lived the same problems that we had lived. Um, and for those people in those first couple of months, they were like, "Oh yeah, I do know how yeah. high level monitoring charts aren't enough, and how logging is too granular." And like, I I, I know, and you're telling me there's something in between that can help. Yeah. But for anyone else who hadn't accumulated the exact same set of scars that we had um it it was a it was a struggle and that thus began the beginning of the never-ending journey to get better at talking about what what honeycomb was and why it needed to exist and why log, the logging monitoring and apm tools of 2016 weren't enough and um yeah, i think one of the great humbling experiences of building honeycomb has been building the tech tech is easy um it's the talking about it to other humans that's hard oh preaching to the choir here i imagine yeah (laughs) talk underwater i find it the other way around that's a fascinating thing to say that the tech is easy but the talking is hard but but maybe we come from two different worlds right where i come from the talk world understanding a bit of tech and you come from the tech world and i'm assuming you've now got to the point where you are able to talk because you, the company's doing really well. But go go back, go back for a sec. I just want to stay in this world of like, because I'm fascinated by how you got started. <laughs> it sounds excellent. When you go out to pitch now, you're a company that has got some great tech and you're really part of this niche that if you land with the right people, they get it. Were you landing with the right people and were they getting it? And where did you get your initial success from? Yeah, we having been in tech and in San Francisco for many years up until this point, um, we sort of had our shortlist in our network of people who either people that we knew had the same set of scars that we did or types of companies that we really suspected had the same types of problems that Parse had. Um, And in particular, we really looked for platform companies, API companies that would have this challenge of shared resources, heterogeneous customer base and unpredictability of how those users would use your platform. Um, But speaking to customers has always been easier than speaking to an investor audience Mm -hmm. because at least customers Mm -hmm. prospects have lived this problem and they understand it. it. And Mm -hmm. um, the investor conversations, those first, honestly, few years um, were a real, <laughs> I'll say a real learning experience. Um, you know, investors, and there's lots of smart ones out there. And and um, honestly, the breadth of their role, I, I couldn't do it if I tried. So more power to yeah. them. But because of the breadth of what they try to do, they always try to put you in a box, right? How yeah. are you like this? How are you like that? And Charity and I knew early on that if we tried to say, oh, we're a logging tool, but faster, 
or we're a monitoring tool, but more flexible, or we're an APM tool, but more customizable, A, we would be anchored to that box and never be allowed to leave. Um, and second, we'd be, like you say, compared to the Splunks and Datadogs and New Relics of the world or Data Traces of the world. Um, and we were like, no, this is, this is different than all of those other tools. It is, there's a different relationship to data than these other tools. And so I remember Charity went off like on a word vision quest in August of 2016. And she came back and she was like, you know what we need to start talking about? Observability. And I was like, what oh, is this word? No. And she was like, well, it's, you know, and she did the whole like control theory definition, but she was like, the only people using this word right now are like these niche teams at like Netflix. Um, yeah. And I think Twilio may have had a team. I'm, I don't remember that one, but we need to define this new word to set us apart and to set, be able to reset expectations relative to monitoring and logging, which already have strong connotations, especially for customers. Um, and, uh, you know, no, no one should ever start their company saying, I will define a new buzzword um, or a new category, yeah. and, and that will be key to my success. Uh, but you did. But we did, and we 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 kind of knew it was the again that was it was the only path forward for us because there was so much gravity pulling us towards one of these other it three worked. phrases. Yep, it's funny. You're so funny. I'm going to delve into this a little bit more, but I'm laughing at you because I've sat writing an S1 document for Dynatrace with lawyers and financial people and it was the bane of my existence and I would like to think that I'm not the engineering type I'm a little more technical than most and I'm trying to explain the simplicity of full stack and end-to-end -end tracing and things like that and they're going is it like and you're like no and it would take us like a day almost to write a sentence and I go it's got to be a better way guys can I just go write this come back and then you guys can try and make sense of it that would be far easier and then I laugh now at observability because we were sort of doing the same thing back then we were like it's not just apm it's also infrastructure monitoring it's also experience monitoring there's got to be a new word and ai ops was coming in and we were like digital performance management we were trying to figure it out and then someone goes observability and i go where did that word come from what is that what we're doing now we got to go and change everything to observability are you kidding me and it's like this was these emerging engineering teams and people like yourself that had a grasp of what the future was going to be and so i'm like and i also understand the pain of like a new word are you gonna but the people that got it got it yeah so this is back to your like you sort of got it so you, you, you knew your people so i'm assuming you go and start selling to your people and it's successful yeah um i think that this is thing that i have learned didn't understand when we started doing this is what makes an engineer great at their job is looking at a situation, understanding and understanding the, 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 what they have to work with, right? Mm -hmm. If you're a, I don't know, a structural engineer, it's like understanding your materials and understanding the, the law, the physical laws that you're operating under. If you're a software engineer, it's understanding the tools that you have and how they fit together and the trade-offs, right? Engineering is all about trade-offs. Um, and you take those you, you, you take those observations, you turn them into rules, you put those into your head, and then you build on top of it. And that is, that's what you do day in, day out. And that 
same quality that makes you good at your job, which is engineering, makes it really hard for someone to come in and tell you, hey, these rules that you have about the world or these tools or trade-offs are wrong. Mm-hmm. And you know, over the course of now Honeycomb's been around seven, seven years, um, we still talk to folks who are like, well, the way that I understand my systems is I have metrics over here for aggregate data. And then I have logs over here for, you know, granular data. And when I need to go from, when I need something in between, I go from my logs, I go from my metrics to my logs and back. And I hold context in my head for how to jump between those. And that is just the way of the world. That is just how we've always done it and how we will always ever do it. And I think that subconsciously we knew the world needed a shock to tell the industry, hey, these changes are coming. Your your containers and your Kubernetes experiments are going to introduce a set of concepts into your world that are going to break all of these rules that you know and so, you know, we're going to use the power of a different word to power of a different word, endless debates about monitoring versus observability that will open you up to how, how your approach to using data to understand your software might have to change. Um, and, you know, I, I, when I think back to those early years, Charity was spending like a I don't know, like half of her waking time on stage or traveling to a stage to speak. Um, and that was educating, you know, looking back, Oh, it was a grand content strategy and category creation at the time. It was like, this is, these are the tools that we have. This is how we know how to reach our people. So we're going to do it. But the industry started to pivot the multi-cloud microservice Kubernetes. It, it's really took off very, very rapidly. I assume you predicted this and were part of this. Therefore, you've put the company in a good position to be successful. And where did you start to see, did you start to see the success in and around that period? I think the success of, it took a couple of years, I'll say. Mm-hmm. Um, actually one anecdote I like to share, um, which is more about the idea of observability rather than Honeycomb's success. Although the two have been pretty undeniably intertwined, um, Monitorama is probably my favorite conference in this industry. Uh, it's a small conference in Portland, um, or they do it in Portland every year, sometimes elsewhere. Um, uh, usually I think maximum like 600 people in 2017 charity gave a talk there. Uh, you know, Monitorama, the tagline at the time was a uh, uh, conference for monitoring conference for practitioners, something like that. And Charity gave a talk in 2017 with the title Monitoring Colon a Postmortem. That's a charity. I'm going <laughs> to you know, piss a lot of people off. Um, and yeah. it was all about how monitoring was the past, um, how it was based <laughs> at a, on at a monitoring conference. At a monitoring conference. Yeah. You know, that's, that's what she does. She goes in and like makes a lot of people mad. Um, <laughs> But, you know, how observability was the future and how all of these things were, were coming and, you know, responses were mixed, as you can imagine. Yeah. In 2018, there were six, maybe seven, but we'll say six talks with the t- word observability in the title. And every one of them supplied their own definition. Uh, some were very, you know, very technical and dry. Some of them were, um, you know, whatever. Like everyone had their own definition. 
And everyone felt the need to spend like at least five minutes saying this is what observability is and that this is not how it's not monitoring. In 2019, um, not only were there seven talks with observability in the title, the conference itself, despite still being Monitorama, changed its tagline to a conference for monitoring and observability practitioners. Oh, well. And no one felt the need to spend five minutes anymore defining the term. Um, That's interesting. And obviously, this is like one tiny lens on the overall market, but absolutely, like you said, is an indicator of how quickly sometimes new ideas can become understood and accepted, even if not fully understood. Um, And I actually, I think that time frame pretty closely tracks how we as a business started to get much more comfortable in explaining our value, showing our customers what was possible, um, and really starting to uh, show our investors that we were not some crazy kids who were, you know, trying to spread some uh, opaque philosophy, but instead had a real potential to build a business. I think it's um you're so spot on because you can evolve a category and the category can can you know extend and the definition of what that category is can change over time but the speed at which observability came in as this new category and I was just happened to be looking at all of the sites who claim to be doing observability yesterday and every single one now that was previously APM or infrastructure monitoring all say observability so everyone now is just like okay it's unanimous it's observability now but it's actually a fascinating store uh, case study in how a category creation occurs yeah and without actually analyst support, because okay. they weren't keeping, they're, they're not keeping up really. Or maybe they saw it, but were too locked in their world to be able to go, well, we can't go and change the name of this thing. We've been doing this like this for a long time now. These new kids, they'll just have to grow up. <laughs> One of the most interesting observations that um, uh, Corey Quinn made on Twitter last year when we first entered the leaders quadrant um, is you know, he's looking at the other companies in the space and he was like, yeah. of this set, Honeycomb is the only one that is not carrying over a set of customers with an older oh. set of expectations about what this product should do. Um, and I think that that is for the companies that, you know, for a long time just said, oh, observability is this logging product glued to an APM product, glued to a monitoring product. Um, and, and, you know, we, we specialized in one of them for a long time and have now built it or built or, or, or bought, um, the other pieces. It is always going to be harder to change how your customers want to use your product rather than being able to set that expectation, uh, from day one. And, you know, Mm -hmm. many of those companies are all doing great. And so (laughs) clearly not actually a problem, but it was an observation that really stood out to me that we continue to have the opportunity to shape what observability means going forward mm-hmm. without a legacy to have to carry forward. Now I've got to ask you, what's the pitch then? You go in and there are traditional teams or new teams and they know these other vendors. How do you differentiate yourself? In the, You said at the start, you're not very good with the words, but this is seven years, eight years later. I'm assuming you're getting closer to your point of difference and what your secret source is. I think we're getting better. Um, I think that 
I really see observability as the natural successor market to logging and monitoring and APM, as we've said. Mm -hmm. And what this means is that when I go into a customer conversation or prospect conversation, I, I really try hard not to pitch. I try to understand their world. I try to understand, um, you know, what they're using today and how, where it, where it is currently frustrating them. Um, you know, if, if pressed against a wall and asked to be, you know, describe what we do, it's we help software engineering teams understand why their code is not behaving the way that they expect. Right. Very, very subjective, very, um, broad. But when I say that to a prospect or a customer, they know what that means. They know how their systems misbehave. Um, and we can, and we can start to have a conversation about how, um, you know, what their current workflow looks like, where they still have questions, what they're not able to do with their tools. And, and often this is, we still have customers today who tell us, you know, early on in, in our conversations, what you say you can do sounds like magic. I don't, mm-hmm. you know, based on the rules that I have in my head of what these data tools can do, I don't believe you. Show me. Yep. And perfect. ultimately, you know, with as with all these, all data tools, what a data, any data tool is capable of comes down to the data store, the data architecture, um, what operations and, and correlations or, or um, you know, aggregations can be done on that data and in, under what performance characteristics. And, you know, I, I usually don't get down to that level on, on the call, but it's showing them what is possible with something like Honeycomb relative to what they're used to, these architectures that were not meant for this scale or complexity of today. Mm-hmm. Um, and helping them see that the rules that they've had in their heads for years don't have to be the rules that they hold going forward anymore. Um, I didn't really answer your question, uh, mostly because no, you framed you, it in a way that you, let me <laughs> no, <laughs> imagine you, talking you, to a customer. You did, you did, but it makes me think a lot of the other vendors are hiring traditional salespeople that don't listen and need to be taught how to pitch. You've got a different model in how you approach selling, which is really understanding the engineer and being quite technical in the approach to be able to challenge the way in which they are engineering, which means you need engineering or knowledgeable, more knowledgeable salespeople. I'm going to hazard a guess you don't have traditional salespeople and your culture is a bit different. I think that that's largely true. Um, We do a lot of classic sales things. Um, you know, mm-hmm. we use the frameworks and, um, you know, big fans of challenge, the challenger sale, as you can imagine here at Honeycomb. Um, but I think that our sales leaders have consistently looked for folks who can be curious, um, who mm-hmm. can, who are there to build long-term partnerships with our customers instead of having it be, be more transactional. Um, and that is something that we both try to screen for and emphasize, uh, I think that, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and say it. Engineers as a buyer or an audience um, are terrible to have to sell to. Um, you know, mm-hmm. engineers always think they know better than the salesperson. They don't want to listen. They think they can build the tool better themselves. Um, I can say all these things because I was all of these things. Um, yeah. And it takes a certain kind of salesperson to lean into that. And be like, yeah, well, and this is a challenge I want to live up to. Um, and I, I think I, I'm really proud of the team that we've built in how they're able to put that into practice and, frankly, 
be able and willing to walk away from a deal if it doesn't feel like it's a good mutual fit. Interesting. Are you, do you, what's your, what's it like for hiring then? How are you, is it a challenge? Because this is not, there are other tools that have a brand recognition that are a lot easier. If you're a traditional salesperson, you just go, I just go where there's gravy, man. Like, I'm just going to go and sell that. It's easy. Um, You're emerging. So it must attract a challenge of personality. Certainly um, our hiring, our hiring approach, you know, hiring for our good market organizations tends to be different from what it's like to hire for our R&D organizations. Um, but I will say across the board, I think we tend to attract people who love to challenge the status quo. They love that honeycomb is a little bit different and that we say, you know, we want to burn down all of the, the legacy, uh, you know, the incumbents out there. They're all doing it wrong. And I think that that leads, means that we have been lucky enough to have a real quality pool of candidates who, you know, because of who they are, because of their natures, are really excited to lean into that empathetic, curious challenger sale um, and to replicate that, um, that sort of, I'm going to challenge what you think about the world ethos that Honeycomb has done all along. Um, I late last year, I finally read, um, there's a book called play bigger on category design and category creation. And, Interesting. uh, it was really fun to read in, you know, at the end of year seven of honeycomb's existence, year six, I don't know the math, um, mm-hmm. to read after we had done all these things intentionally or unintentionally. Cause one of the things that they're like, oh, you, you must, <laughs> do, you know, one of the key parts of building a uh, strong category defining company is having your internal company culture reflect the, the, the approach that you take to the market. And again, this was not a thing that we had done intentionally. We were not like, ah, because we are challenging incumbents, we need to hire a bunch of people who are going to be willing to challenge everything. That's just who charity and I are. That's the type of people we want to work with the people who are going yeah. to, you know, drive our You're poor like, people. Goodness, we did it. We, we did do what they said we were supposed to do. That's a relief. <laughs> what a relief. It, it, was, it was kind of a relief and kind of like a surprise and kind yeah. of like, oh, how, you know, you know, my brain is always, what could we have done better if we had known that this was the blueprint all along instead of stumbling into it? But uh, Wait a second. Did they write this book on us? No, no. That's not <laughs> at all. <laughs> but it's, you know, it it was, it was great to see that, um, you know, <laughs> we, one of the warnings we have given, um, we hired a new people leader, um, very end of last year. And some of the warnings that we always, especially people in these roles where everyone at the company has an opinion about people processes, everyone, you know, is going to, mm. to, to want to challenge something in the status quo there. And, and the, the, one of the caveats we give these candidates is, Hey, just so you know, there's going to be a lot of engagement. It is because just because someone has a lot of feedback doesn't mean they think you're doing it wrong. This is just how we at Honeycomb show our love, our, our, our level of interest and engagement. And uh, so again, there's pros and cons to bringing together a whole bunch of contrarians and people who want to challenge the status quo. Uh, but it it's a lot of, it's great for what we're trying to do in the industry. 
um, and leads to a very consistent, I think, uh, point of view and, and way of being as a company that helps with recruiting and aligning around values and, um, you know, relationships with customers and helps us be a very, I think, authentic company as a result. Mm. How do you see yourself as a leader? Are you like, this is an engineering background. You're not the traditional business school. Mm, I'm going to start with the culture and business priorities and points of difference and the strategic fives. And this is very different. No, um, I am not that kind of leader. Um, I, again, wish that sometimes I wish I was sometimes I, I knew, wish I knew the rules mm. so that I could, uh, selectively adhere to them and selectively you, break away you, from them. You don't seem to be the person that <laughs> likes the rules. I, I'm picking this up in the podcast that you don't want to follow the norm. You want to break some stuff and be different and build your own thing. It is, it is sometimes nice to know what the, what the rules are though, so that you can break them. <laughs> sometimes best practices are best practices for a reason, which again, having, having stumbled through uh, many, many uh, of them, not knowing them, they're, they're useful. Hmm. Um, I think, um, I was actually just describing this to, um, we had a new hire onboarding this morning. You have to remember right before Charity and I started this company, we were not executives. We were not high up people. We were just employees at a startup that loved what that startup was doing and the team that we were doing it with. Um, the type of employee that I was, was the annoying kid in the back of the room being like, why is that the way it is? And, you know, what does, what does this function do? And how does that work? And why is that decision being made? Um, you know, whether or not it was, I was supposed to know, uh, the type of employee that charity was, was the you know, person who was like, this is obviously the right way table. Like if the if authorities don't believe in me, like I'm going to flip a table and like make them believe. And, you know, it's just always very anti-system, anti-authority. And I think that the way that those two personalities mesh is we know we don't have all the answers. We know we are never going to have all the answers. Um, and we know that the best chance that we have to Honeycomb being successful is by bringing together as many smart, curious, um, uh, contrarian people that we can and pushing as much context as we can out to them to tap into all of that. Um, you started this question by, you know, highlighting my engineering background, which the, what was left unsaid very kindly is that I knew nothing about go-to-market when we started this company. And I think a lot of what has helped Honeycomb and me get to where we are is a, a an immense number of kind people who are will, have been willing to share their expertise, yourself mm. being included, um, and also a my willingness to just ask endless numbers of dumb and annoying questions just to be like, how does this work? And why did you make that decision? And, you know, what else did you consider to try and as quickly and efficiently as possible model the brains of folks like yourself in order to pick the right path for us? Hmm. A lot of learning so, through, through mistakes. I love the status quo challenge thing. It's things that I try and teach my kids. It's something that I've natively have just done because I think I'm a pain. And I just, sometimes things just shouldn't be the way they are. And I, I, it was fascinating me thinking, hearing you talk about it, that um, you, charity, your business partner is, is or co-CEO is the science and your art. You're like, um, hmm, what if, what if it wasn't? Do, do, 
Can you draw those parallels? Can you? Uh, I, I've I sat know. in a class before. I don't know if we I've can do the science as a parallel. <laughs> no, I've sat. I've sat in a class once, and it was the history of human evolution. And there was the science kids on one side of the class, and the art kids on the other. And the art kids were going, "Huh, oh, that's really weird." And it was like, so the whole reason for you going out on a Friday night is so you can pass your genes on to the next generation. Was the statement? <laughs> and like all the art kids are going. That's fascinating. I've never really contemplated. And the science kids are like that's phys- that's impossible. That doesn't make any sense. Like that is not how it's how I am programmed to believe that that is the case. I think in that analogy, charity is the art, and I'm the science. Um, <laughs> we, I mean, I think one of the, the the most fun and challenging and educational parts of of my personal honeycomb journey has been figuring out how to. It's working with charity and figuring out how. Um, we balance each other out. Um, I have joked for a long time that honestly, the right answer is usually somewhere between the two of us because we are just such different yeah. people, um, both engineers, of course, but her as, you know, she, I'm sure she was born, she came out of the womb with carrying a pager. Um, I, at one point, fancied myself like maybe I was going to be a designer. I'm not uh-huh. nowhere, nowhere near that. Uh, but in terms of basically any other personality test, assessment, business horoscope, we're just opposite ends of the spectrum. And a lot of figuring out how to close that gap and come together has been us together figuring out, okay, well, this is what you take for a given. This is what I take for a given. <laughs> Why are they so far apart? Let's like talk about that. And let's strip that, you know, these assumptions back to the problem that we're actually trying to solve and other ways that we could, you know, approach it that makes sense to both of us it's awesome it's really awesome and the fact that you have enough empathy to understand as a leader who you are and who charity is and you're not stubborn and going my way or the highway you're going actually interesting your approach is like that huh not all leaders are like that i think it first um it helps that we had a solid base of respect for each other before we started to comp- start a company together. Again, we had been coworkers, not super close coworkers, but coworkers for three years. Um, this level of understanding each other has come from seven years of working on that relationship. Um, it is something that is, uh, you know, all the business articles love to talk about alignment. It starts with the founders. It starts with the founders being able to talk to each other and when having conflict, retreat to that common ground of we both want the company to be as successful as possible. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I think you said something earlier about her being my co-CEO. We're not co-CEOs. Um, she was the CEO for the first three years of Honeycomb and okay. it came a point when it made sense for us to switch. And you know, now she gets to focus on being CTO, which I think yep. you know she's that like mad scientist, um, you know, archetype of a Silicon Valley CTO, but that sort of shift doesn't happen without being willing and eventually able to work through the like weird, messy interpersonal bits, even, even when you enter with the best intentions. So, uh, yeah, I, I could go on a long time (laughs) and I'll spare your audience here, but I could go on a long time about, uh, you know, what it is like to really invest in key working relationships and the value that you get out of that. 
Everyone puts on the slide that the single most important success of the company isn't actually the tech, it's the culture. I'm starting to believe when I hear stories like this, that this is true because the reason why companies are successful or fail is based on the relationships that you have with your work colleagues and how productive and innovative together you can be. Yeah. Um, this, I don't know, may sound like a cliche depending on who's listening, but we, especially over the last couple of years during the boom times, had many candidates, especially within engineering, who had to do the math where they turned down more lucrative, in some cases significantly more lucrative offers from elsewhere to come work at Honeycomb because they saw the environment and uh, you know team that we were building, how we wanted to work together, how we wanted to tackle problems together. And for them, it was worth it to make that choice. And that is something that, um, you know, I, in the early days, this wasn't true, but today, certainly I think our board understands, um, that culture is, has a real positive business impact. It's not just something that the people talk about that makes them feel good. I know it. So I know it seems crazy, but I think people want to do meaningful work. I know that's like <laughs> it's really, really like it's a revolutionary thought. But um, one of your cultural traits is to act with autonomy and ownership, and I think people feel empowered when you give them the opportunity to make a difference in the work that they do because they spend a lot of damn time working. And if they've got leaders that listen to them, they tend to produce better work. They're more passionate about what they do. Like I think you could be onto something. I hope so. So. <laughs> okay, so uh, actually, no, before I go, I wanted to go one question on the tech before we, um, it's been an awesome conversation. I think I could go on for just about ever talking to you. Um, I got to ask this question. You know where I'm going with this question, don't you? We, we did have a brief discussion about it, but women in tech is mm-hmm. something that's like on the hot lips of, a, you know, the, the, the top of the agenda of these big traditional companies that go, we need more female leaders. And it's like, well, maybe we just practice what we preach and we just give people equal opportunities and they'll emerge. And here we are. What's your take? Huh. Um, that was a loosely opened question, open ended <laughs> question. Wasn't it? I really didn't go into it. was. Um, First, I'll say I used to hate answering questions like this uh, earlier in our career yeah. because uh, the focus questions like this can take the focus away from what an individual leader has achieved and more on characteristics out of yep. her control. But that wasn't yep. the spirit of your question, so um, it's just no, a it's caveat for leaders. But, you, but for anyone that doesn't know, it's a really good point that some companies aren't getting invested in because of females or they're just not. It's like a male-dominated thing and it passes down and that's a stigmatism that has to end. It's... It's got nothing to do with it. Is that where you're going with that? Or have I just really put my foot in it? Uh, No, but that's, uh, I appreciate you making that point. Um, I think that uh, a a, a truism is that, like you said, people just want to do good work. Um, Turns out that Mm -hmm. applies to females too. Women just want to (laughs) do good work in a place where their work will take center stage, not be, and not have to have their face rubbed into the fact all the time that they are different. Um, yeah. You know, I, I am lucky enough to work with a team that has a ton of incredible and accomplished women. And you know what? A thing that they really like is not having to talk about that experience during the interview process. Um, yep. Not feeling like the token or having the token in the existing tokens sort of pulled into the process to talk to them. Um, I think that 
the it's like it doesn't have to be a thing if it's not a thing if you just go it's just we're people then that's you can act like people you can act like adults that is true if you have already shown that you can walk the walk if i walk into a team that is all men um yep no matter the size they're gonna have they have a little bit of work to do to show that I, I, you know, it's not going to be the worst, worst possible combination of solo Christine in a team of all men. Um, mm-hmm. I would love to be in a world where we can assume that everyone is just an adult and we'll just treat each other fine. And I think that we are certainly closer to that future than we were 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've still gone to plenty of industry events where the, the activity suggested after, um, after the bars close is going to a strip club because everyone loves certain body parts. And I've, I've been in that crowd where I've, you know, looked at my watch and been like, Oh, it's probably time to go to bed. Um, I think that there are still a lot of, and I think that, you know, I'm now at a point in my career where I'm comfortable enough and, and stable enough in my technical, technical credibility or my career, you know, achievements but that's not true of a lot of women who are at various points in their careers. And I think that there is still, you know, when I see, honestly, as when I was a, a college student, I really tried to steer clear of like women only societies and organizations because I just so strongly did not want to be identified by my gender. Um, yep. But as I have, matured, I look at those organizations and I think that they are still doing great work because there's a real population of people who feel underrepresented in the industry as a whole who don't have an existing network of people who look like them, think like them, have backgrounds like them, um, and will be able to be more successful in their roles because they're able to talk to and um, relate to people like them. An example that isn't gender related. Interesting. Uh, one of our engineers is hard of hearing. And he, there's a brand new CNCF uh, working group that is focused around deaf and hard of hearing um, experiences in software, I think. I think that's what the purpose of the working group is. And because this is new, there are all of these stories on LinkedIn, like this week, about the impact that meeting other hard of hearing engineers had on their tra- trajectories because they knew that they, they learned that they could ask for closed captioning in meetings. They learned that they could ask for certain things that would allow them to be more successful. And I, you know, th- th- women in tech and hard of hearing in tech, very different, different yeah. sets of challenges. But I like that as an but- example of there's real value in finding your people before you can feel like all of tech is your people. Yeah. I just love, um, as I'm listening to you talk, I love the idea of it being a community, a community of like-minded people going through similar struggles or feeling a certain way and having an avenue to talk and to brainstorm and to relate. And That's how I sort of... Maybe there will be a future when we don't need specialized communities because... Tech will be inclusive and welcoming enough to everyone from the very beginnings of everyone's careers, mm. and um, I, w- I would love to be in that future. 
And we yeah. all have some work to do before we get there. Uh, it was a tricky question for me to throw at you, particularly as a male, and 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 I think you've answered it so well. I think you've, and I'd love your your story of like you originally were like, I don't want to be part of this, and then later on you're like, actually, I've got, I, I sort of see that in a lot of what you're doing. You, you're you're continuously learning and adapting to your environment as you're growing, which is turns out younger Christine was kind of a jerk. <laughs> in some ways <laughs> and a good sense of humor as well um before we go to the rapid fire questions because i've got some rapid fire questions at the end um uh it's seven years and there's something about seven years i think i read somewhere along the lines like i think you shed all of your cells within seven years internally as a human you become a new person <laughs> um Maybe it evolves. It doesn't just happen on, on like day, you know, six you just dissolve or, 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 and 64 days. <laughs> I've respawned. My kids would like to think you respawn. Um, but maybe in tech, it's pretty similar too that there's with a seven-year time frame, the world changes. It happens quite rapidly. So you evolve as an adaptive technology species. You said the tech is easy. Is what you originally built still arriving at where you think you are today and where you want to go. I think it is. And there's yeah. obviously, you know, awesome. the, the, now that now the vision is farther out and now the, the road is longer and there's all sorts of other things that we want to do. But I, uh, I am every day appreciative and amazed at what Honeycomb has turned into and what observability has turned into over these last seven years. And um, I can't wait for the next seven. Oh, amazing. Um, now, these rapid-fire questions, the first one, I normally would do it the other way around, but I'm going to ask you about AI. AI will be continue to be overhyped for the immediate foreseeable future, but I hope it will evolve into a more nuanced understanding of how to allow humans to do what humans are great at and allow machines to do what machines are great at, which I don't think we have a great handle on today. No. No, there's a lot of adapting to be done despite the hype. What advice would you give to 18-year-old Christine? Can I swear on your podcast? Oh, absolutely. Great. I nearly swore, but I was going to swear really badly. And I was like, don't do that, dickhead. Great. I just want to check. Um <laughs> Stop shitting on the marketing majors, which I swear is not something I'm saying just because I'm talking to you. But in again, in college, Christine was kind of a jerk and there were business majors. And I, you know, I was like, oh, I'm an engineering major. Oh, they just take soft classes. And like, no, 18-year-old Christine, these are skills you are going to have to learn or certainly appreciate however many years from now. Don't be a jerk. And who knows Apology what they're thinking. Apology accepted, Christine. <laughs> Thanks for shitting on me all these years. So I feel so much better now. Um, what do you do in your own time? Hang out with my dogs. I read a lot. Hmm. Um, I'm on track to exceed a book a week this year, um, which I've done in the last few years. And um, in the winter, I like to snowboard and I play a lot of board games. 
Don't tell me you have an engineering process for understanding how many books you've read and you're collating the key themes into like a some kind of Jira board. I I'm a I'm a I'll say I'm a heavy Goodreads user. Uh, there's no Jira board, but I do like to reflect. Yeah, interesting. It's good. I like it. Um, how do you prioritize your time? <sighs> Poorly. Um, this is one of those things that you know they're like here are five skills that all very productive people do and. Uh, learning to prioritize my own work is something that I am always getting better at. Very good. Uh, best advice anyone has ever given you? Professor in college, um, John Maeda, oh. once told me success, the key to success is always having potential. Interesting. Nice. Yeah. Potential is never fulfilled too. So it, And always expanding and what's possible. Huh. I'm sensing a little bit about that and your company. Um, what career advice would you give to kids today? Besides learn how to learn how to use AI as a tool. Um, well, that's a good one. That's a good one. Uh, and what a time to be a kid. Um, I know, right? Like my kids floating around watching Netflix and swiping traditional TVs because they think they can interact and dive inside them and oculuses and connecting with the friends and pinging and flying around the world and like you know it's crazy beats me riding on my bike <laughs> with a like a poster pretending to be a knight like it's a little bit more advanced i think i think the the career advice um i'd give them because i think at this point ai is almost like a life skill um is always spend a little bit of time figuring out what you don't know yet. You don't have to know it, but knowing where the blank spaces are in your brain can, I think is really useful. I love it. Be inquisitive, right? Be inquisitive. Yeah. Don't, don't uh, kind of hold a, hold a misconception and then just, and then lose all curiosity about that. Hmm. I'm picking up that common thread again this challenging this status quo is something that's like pretty well embedded is this something that you learned where, where did you w work out this is my last question i know we got a wrap but like is this where did you develop this characteristic did you inherit it did you just have you always just been born and just done it that way i think um i think it was developed growing up my parents had very high expectations. My parents were immigrants. And so, you know, classic, like they had very high expectations for me to achieve academically um, within the bounds that they were kind of familiar with. Um, and the outside world, I felt, never had particularly high expectations for me. As in, you know, no one would have walked past me in fifth grade and been like, she, she's that girl, she's going to be a CEO. And I think reconciling these differences of like Christine, high expectations on this very narrow path and the entire world doesn't think that you can achieve very much um, has always, well, has implanted a giant chip on my shoulder to go find out for myself what paths I'm not exploring um, and to be really drawn to this type of people uh, Charity and my husband actually, who are just like, mm, I'm going to take your rules and like dump them in the garbage and 
chart my own path. And I, I tend to look at those people and just go, how did your brain do that? But then get curious about it and, and shape that. So, you know, I am a child of my circumstances. Um, and I can say it is not boring. <laughs> Unreal. Like, thank you so much for taking the time to take us on this journey. I've really felt like, I felt like this was a nice story. Like that there's this whole story where you've really opened up and shared some um, really interesting insights. And if I take away anything, I just, it makes me more motivated to talk to my kids about just being inquisitive, you know, like Good. for all the lessons that you can learn and just for all humans, just to be, be inquisitive. Don't, don't just accept everything that comes at you is what it is because it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. I might apologize in advance for the, the I don't know how many more why questions you're going to have to answer for your kids, but I, it probably will also not be boring. No, it's not. And they, they you know, just the sheer nature. And I, I do these podcasts because I'm genuinely inquisitive and interested yeah. in learning. And I come away from this podcast personally being able to go like, huh, wow, there are things that I want to do. I want to read more. I want to, yeah, this category creation thing is still a problem. I want to read that book and let's see if I can tick the boxes as to like, what could I have learned? What could we have done better? But thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This Thanks. was a blast. Yeah, that's awesome. And I really wish you all success as you move forward and look forward to catching up with you again when we get to talk again about how successful you've been. <laughs> and Here's continue that. to become. Here's that. All right. Thanks, Thanks. so much, Dave. Stay. Bye.